Welcome again to City Life here this July 4th weekend. Whether you're here with us in these pews, whether you're at home viewing from the couch, maybe you're traveling for the holiday weekend, you're watching it on your phone, no matter how you are with us tonight, I just want to greet you and thank you for being with us here at the City Life Church. And on this weekend where we celebrate freedom, I think it's, it's powerful to remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 3, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that applies to whether you're here in a pew or you're live streaming from a laptop, that the Spirit of God is in you and He's with you and He wants to meet with you tonight and He wants to bring freedom in your life tonight. That's good. Can I get an amen? Right. Because as the video we just watched opened with saying, the world is longing to be free. And that's not foreign to Scripture. Right? The idea of freedom is laced throughout Scripture. I think of what Jesus says in, in John 8 where he says, Who the Son sets free is free indeed. Or what Paul writes in Galatians that it is for freedom that you have been set free. This theme of freedom is throughout Scripture because God wants all people to experience freedom through Jesus Christ. But perhaps the story, the key narrative about freedom in Scripture, certainly in the Old Testament, we find in Exodus. And it's where we're going to turn tonight. And I'll actually be preaching from Exodus chapter 31 tonight if you want to turn there, if you want to swipe there. But I felt this week as I watched that video, it might have been Wednesday or Thursday, just God prompting me to share something uh, that he was speaking to me. And it was almost like Fred preached it already. I almost bum-rushed the stage to take the mic and say, hey, stop preaching my sermon. But uh, it's because, and it's all right, what we're talking about from the first half of Exodus will take us to our destination tonight. But when you start the book of Exodus, the children of God, again, the Israelites, were in slavery. Not only were they were enslaved, but they were oppressed. Like the Pharaoh was so scared of their numbers at one point that he orders a genocide and all the, the newborn males had to be thrown in the Nile. And this is what Moses was saved from. And we know this story, right, from multiple movies. The Prince of Egypt, the Ten Commandments, that terrible Christian Bale one who, I can't even remember the name, it was that bad. But, but, but Hollywood has told us this story. We're often familiar with this story. Moses in Exodus is the protagonist, not so anonymous. He is the hero. We know about Moses, and God delivers Moses so he can go back and deliver the Israelites. That's a whole sermon in and of itself that, that we experience freedom so that we can go help other people get a taste of that freedom. Like we're delivered so we can pull a Harriet Tubman and go right back and deliver others. But again, that's another sermon. But in the next chapters, after God calls Moses to free the Israelites, we read of some of the most remarkable moves of God in human history. Right? We've got the 10 plagues. We've got the episode at the Red Sea. And the end result is the Israelites are freed from Egypt. And as you read the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see in the book of Psalms, you see in the prophets and elsewhere in the Old Testament that God's people are told again and again to look back at what happened in Exodus, to look back on his faithfulness, to look back on his power that was able to be faithful then. Because when you look back on God's faithfulness in the past, it stirs your faith in the present. And fruit of this reflecting over centuries is a stream of theology called liberation theology. I don't want to sell it short. But it's a view that God is on the side of the oppressed and relief from oppression is the, it's the goal of Christian work. That liberation from social and political oppression is the anticipation of ultimate salvation. Now what it gets right is that God wants justice. He's against injustice, he's against oppression. He cares about justice in our society. 
but where it highlights the journey from oppression to freedom, it kind of overlooks the ultimate point of the book of Exodus. It wasn't just to get the Israelites out of Egypt. Like when I was taught this as a kid, I was taught that, that song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go with a uh. Yeah, yeah, it's like James Brown. I don't know who wrote that, but they were probably a fan of James Brown. Because that, that song is as the kids would, I don't know, I'm not a youth pastor anymore. Maybe the kids would say it, Bob. But if, the, if God's plan was only to get them out of Egypt, then the book of Exodus would have stopped there. But we get another 25 chapters in the book of Exodus. Why? Because Exodus isn't just about us getting out of Egypt. It's about us getting to Sinai where the Israelites make a covenant with God. It's to get to Sinai to get to this covenant and relationship with God. And if you go back to the beginning of Exodus and Moses confronting Pharaoh, Moses says on behalf of God, let my people go, but then he keeps talking. He says, so that they may worship me in the desert. And God had told Moses all the way back at the the burning bush in Exodus 3.12 that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. This is where Fred started preaching my sermon for me. Because this word worship is also used as serve in the Hebrew, and is literally translated, be slaves to. As one theologian put it, Exodus is more a story of repatriation, use that word next week, more a story of repatriation than emancipation. It's a story of a transfer of power from, from a bad master to a new and infinitely good and holy one. And that's how we taste life and freedom. And when, when you begin to see this, that exodus and the story of freedom goes far beyond just let my people go. You begin to understand God's love and God's freedom and what we experience in the gospel. Because just like we often want his love to take me as I am and then, and then leave any commands from there, we often want a freedom that leaves us with no restrictions and no commands. But there's a powerful quote by Samuel West. He was a pastor during the American Revolution. He was a a delegate at the Constitutional Convention. And I'll never forget this quote where he says, perfect freedom consists in obeying. Where licentiousness begins, liberty ends. Now, licentiousness is just a fancy word for disobedience. So what he's saying is perfect freedom consists in obeying. Where disobedience begins, liberty ends. And I share that because our culture has has long defined freedom in negative terms, where it's the absence of restraints, it's the absence of limits. We desire autonomy, we desire Independence Day, and we celebrate Independence Day. And we certainly celebrate this physical freedom we have, right? We have freedom tonight to come on July 4th and worship together. Open up the Bible, worship God. That is not a global right, that is something we should celebrate that we have here in America. But freedom physically, it also has its limits. Where licentiousness begins, liberty ends. Like you're free to get in your car after a service, drive down work at 120 miles per hour, shooting fireworks out of your sunroof, but it's probably not gonna end well. You might lose your liberty. Physical freedom has its limits. Freedom spiritually is much the same. Where we cast off obedience and think that's freedom, but it's an illusion. I learned this a hard way when I was younger, that you can freely do things that you end up in bondage to. You can freely do things that you become a slave to. If you aren't serving God, you're going to serve something else. Genuine autonomy as we seek it, it's, it's not really an, an option. Perfect freedom, and again, Fred was getting at this. It's not the absence of constraints, 
but it's finding the right ones, the ones that liberate us and give us life. This is the gift when we get to Mount Sinai, where we are in our text tonight. This is the gift that God was giving his people, the Israelites, right, who had lived for centuries in slavery and bondage, and he was trying to teach them how to live to live physically and spiritually free lives. That's why it's chapter after chapter. It's lengthy. He's teaching this people that had never known freedom how to walk in freedom, live free. But again, that's a free sermonette on Freedom Spark by that video, but it's not without purpose. Because as we get to Sinai in the book of Exodus, it's where we meet our unheralded character tonight. And again, we're, we're uh, more familiar with the first half of Exodus because this is the narrative. Again, it's, the, it's the, the ones we get the movies from. I still can't remember the name of that movie with Christian Bale. Just st- still salty that Ridley Scott failed me. Would you say it was Anthony? God and Kings. I'll give you a prize that I don't have on me. But uh, thank you, sir. But again, we're more familiar with the first half of Exodus. And the Bible stories we're often familiar with are more like the first half of Exodus. They're the narrative portions. They're the ones that are larger than life, right? Moses is, is challenging an entire nation He's, he's, he's parting seas, and he's, he's sparking miracles. Rivers are turning into blood. And sometimes it's hard to wake up on Monday, get in the car, and drive to work, and, it, and feel like we're in these shoes that are larger than life. But a part of the problem is that many of us will wake up on Monday, and we're not going to open the Bible again until we step into service that next weekend. There's surveys that show 80% of of, of Americans that go to church don't open up their Bible between services. So while there are some or over 3,200 characters in the Bible, most of us can more name about like 32. And we're doing this summer series because some of the best lessons in the Bible come from the lesser known and sometimes plain unknown characters. Because just because a person didn't get a lot of ink in Scripture, it doesn't mean that they don't have a lot to teach us. And so to teach and inspire us tonight, I want to highlight the first person in scripture that God says he fills his spirit with, puts his spirit in. So it's kind of a big deal. (laughs) That's significant. Like God in his sovereignty is not going to do this all haphazard and willy-nilly. No, God is intentional that, that he would, in scripture, this would be the first person that we see filled with his spirit. And so certainly the first person filled with the Holy Spirit has a lot to teach us and inspire us, the Spirit-filled church. So what did the Holy Spirit anoint this person for? Right? We might think, man, toppling giants like David, parting seas like Moses, calling down fire from heaven like Elijah. Again, it's in, it's in Exodus. You might think it's Moses. He's got the list of miracles. Surely he was the one filled with the Spirit. But again, this account doesn't happen on the front end of Exodus. It happens on the back end of Exodus. Let's be serious. Not a lot of people read through the back end of Exodus. This is where uh, uh, Bible in a year plans go to die. There are, there are uh, graveyards of, of Bible reading plans that ended in Exodus. And it's this, this passage, these passages are not going to fuel many of your devotionals because, again, these are detailed laws for people and detailed instructions for building the tabernacle, which was going to house God's presence. It's no small thing, so there's a lot of details. And yet it's in these pages that we meet our oft-forgotten figure tonight. And again, we're going to read starting in Exodus 31, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, 
and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of worksmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of this other guy, of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. So it's here in verse 1 where we first meet Bezalel. He's not a warrior, not a king, not a priest, not somebody with a large platform and a, a lot of followers. We don't have anything that he said that we can tweet out this week from his mouth. He was Moses' foreman for this tabernacle project. This was a man who had the proverbial nine to five. He worked with his hands. He was a craftsman. And I think so often in the church when we think of the spirit of God coming on us, we think it's for uh, uh, empowerment. And, and, and certainly, you read the book of Acts. Let's be asking for that, right? Let's get some revival through the power of the Holy Spirit working in his church. But the first time we see the spirit's anointed, anointing, it's connected to building, working with our hands. And as somebody who worked construction for summers to pay for college, I can dig that, that the Holy Spirit's in that. And as somebody that went to college to, to be an art and English major, the fact that the Spirit came upon him to be creative and make artistic works, that's cool to me. But you think the glory of God is beautiful. And if the Holy Spirit is going to bring God's glory to earth, it's going to be beautiful. But when you strip away the many descriptives and the, and the side notes in this passage, when you boil it down, it reads that God called Bezalel by name and filled him with the Spirit to work. And this is key and crucial for the church, God's Spirit-filled people. Because so often we hold the Word of God on the weekend, right, and we read from it. And from the very first page, it begins to talk about work. God essentially puts in the first work week with a day of rest to complete it. But so often we forget about all the Bible says about the work of our hands. We'll celebrate our freedom on the weekends, and then we go back and feel like a slave to the grind Monday through Friday. And as a result, there can be a significant gap between our eternal security and our hope and our faith and our day-to-day -day reality. And it can result in just an extension of this life that we're prone to of compartmentalization and duality. Where there's a whole slice and spectrum of our lives where we spend 40 hours, 50 hours, maybe even more, right? And we think that our faith and our worship doesn't touch it. But you know, for a while, during this whole coronavirus, a lot of us were spending zero hours <laughs> at the workplace. We were sent home. And while everyone was sent home from work and not going places, you know what the most binged show was? Tiger King. It was not Tiger King, but that is an excellent guess. <laughs> You'll like the answer, though. It was The Office. It is now the number one streamed show in the history of Netflix. And it officially became that during COVID when, when everybody just bum-rushed their TVs. And what did they stream? The Office. It was getting hundreds of thousands of viewers per week while every other show was barely touching 100,000. In this season, we're like, we've got more options than ever before. And people had more time on their hands than ever before to watch shows, and they went back to the office. Now, part of this is because the office is hilarious. Can I get an amen? But it's almost like, dare I say it, they missed the office. They missed work. It would testify to the way that God created us. 
that we're designed by God for work. And by work, we can speak to creative service. Right? This, this work certainly speaks to our, our nine-to-five job or our career, but it's also just our Monday through Friday creative service, from meetings in boardrooms to doing laundry and, and delivering it to bedrooms, from jobs that create to jobs that serve to, to the work done at home while we raise and serve the next generation. We all put in work during the week. Our Monday through Friday grind might look different across this room, but one thing is universal. We were created for that, for creative service, for making ourselves useful to others through work. So much so that, again, when we lose work, we lose the ability to work, whether it's the coronavirus or a personal injury that takes us out of work or a job, it can spark depression, can be disturbing. You know, the cliche says that at the end of our lives, we'll, we'll never look back and wish we spent more time at the office. And that's true. But how many of us at the end of life will wish we poured more of our skills and times into meaningful contributions that would let people receive, give and receive more life and give and receive more love? But we've got this complicated relationship with work. Right? It fulfills us and it frustrates us. <laughs> it, it, it's a giver of purpose and it's a pain in the butt. So I want to look at Bezalel, Moses' foreman for the tabernacle. Again, his leading craftsman, this man who the Holy Spirit fills to work. What can he teach the Spirit-filled church about our relationship with work? And I want to look at it from three angles and three perspectives tonight. And the first is inward, work and self, work and our identity. Because it says right at the start of this passage, I have called by name. God is saying, I have called him by name. He knew Bezalel personally. The same way we apply Psalm 139 to us and our children, that, that God knew them. God knew me before he even formed me in the womb. He knew my, my life. He knew my passions. He knew my desires. He, he knew my personality, my DNA, my Enneagram, which I like to think maybe I share with Bezalel. He's probably like a four or five. I don't know. David can correct me because he's an artist. But God knew all of this when he created him. God knew his failings and his flaws and his sins, and yet he called him by name. So my question that for you and that you can ask yourself is, do I feel called by God? But before you answer, here's where preaching on work and calling can get crooked quickly because we make it about us doing for God. But before we even get there, do you feel called by name, by the creator of the universe, to walk in relationship with him? Let me remind you, maybe it's revelation for you tonight, that God absolutely calls you by name into relationship with him. And it's from there that this relationship can inform our work. And I, I think we often don't feel like we're called or, or, or we're walking in our calling because we've made it this elusive thing that involves a platform or a microphone or a pulpit. But again, Bezalel's calling, the one that the Holy Spirit fills him for was to work to serve creatively. This was his assignment. You talk about how churchy we made the word calling. Assignment is another churchy word that just speaks to like the specific calling. But I want to consider briefly 1 Corinthians 7. Because here Paul is counseling people that, that when they become a Christian, when their life has just been transformed, when they've just become a new creation, he counsels them that it's, it's unnecessary to change what they're doing in life. Be it marital state, Social standing, career. Verse 17 reads, only let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned you and to which God has 
called you. And these two words used by Paul in this verse, assignment and calling, they're key. Because, again, I think we've elevated these words to an elusive level in the church to where it almost seems like our calling is over the horizon. Our our purpose and assignment, we're just not there yet. But here Paul is, is, again, he's speaking to those that have just become Christians. And this is key because in the same letter, right, these same two words are used in Paul's famous passage about the body of Christ. Speaking to one's calling in relationship to God and being assigned spiritual gifts to do ministry in the body of Christ. Many of us are familiar with that. But in the same way that we're called and assigned to build the church, Paul is saying we're called into the world and assigned gifts and talents to build community, (laughs) to build culture. So what this means for us is our nine to five, it's not a demeaning necessity or a necessary evil. It's part of our calling. Out of all creation, only humans were given a job. And mankind's call and job in Genesis to, quote, work and take care of the earth. It's a holy phrase. In the book of Numbers, the exact same phrase is used to describe the work of priests in the temple. You know, we often can, can elevate one calling or, or, or one career over another like God is more involved in one than the other. But no matter what your Monday through Friday work, grind, or career is, God is with you in it. Right? He's calling you into a relationship with him that informs how you work and how you see work and how you see yourself. You know, what am I talking about? The problem with work, sometimes it's not even work. The problem with work sometimes isn't even how we see work. It's how we see ourselves. Because a proper personal grasp of the gospel means that we don't operate for approval. We work from assurance. We don't have to work for approval, whether it's of God or man. We work from the assurance that God loves us. He's called us. He he sent his son to die for us. As it says in Ephesians 2, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so no man can boast. Is there work to do? Yeah, keep reading the next verse, right? Is there work to do to provide for our families? Absolutely. But before we get to work, whether it's that Ephesians 2.10 work or the work we do at our workplace, We have to grasp God's grace. And again, a proper grasp of grace means that we don't work for approval. We work from this posture of assurance that Jesus already died for you. It says in Romans 5, 8, he did this while we were still sinners. We didn't earn it. We can never earn it. When we lose this grasp and this posture of grace, God's grace as our core reality, that's when work can become an idol. Because work becomes how we strive to assert our dignity or our worth and our our value. That's why rest becomes elusive. (laughs) That's why we've become a burnout culture, because you'll never do enough to feel enough. And when you lose this reality, the reality of God's grace, you drift into a kind of work where you think you have to supply your own existence, find your own meaning, and fuel your value. But when you fully grasp God's relationship with you and the implications of the gospel on your life, you no longer have to work for approval. You can work from assurance. So how do you work from assurance? What does this mean practically? In Colossians 3.23, Paul puts it so simple. Work as if you're working for the Lord. So what does working for the Lord in light of his grace look like? Well, it's powerful because it saves us from underwork. Because if I'm working for God... I'm not going to cut corners and sell him short. Not only is he God, but he sent his son to die for me. So working as if I'm working for God saves me from underwork because I'm not going to cut God short. But it also, and I think this is important, 
frees us from overworking because we don't have to prove ourselves to God. We can't earn it if we tried. We don't have to strive for approval. We have assurance. Again, sometimes the problem with work, okay, sometimes it's work. Some of y'all are like, I'm looking for a job right now. I'll pray for that. But sometimes the problem with work is not even how we see work. It's how we look inward and see ourselves. And again, the question we should ask is, am I going to work operating from the assurance I have in Jesus or operating for approval? But there's a second perspective that's key, and it's outward instead of inward. Work and others. Because later in Exodus, it's talking about Bezalel again. Actually, from about Exodus 31, you start turning through the chapters. His name is at the beginning of most of the chapters. But it's in Exodus 35, verse 34, when Moses is relaying this revelation that God gave him in Exodus 31. In Exodus 35, he's telling the Israelites, and he says, The Lord has given both him, Aholiab, or excuse me, and Aholiab, the son of that name I'm not going to try to say, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach their skills to others. The ability to teach others speaks to the fact that our gifts aren't just for us. Our gifts are meant to be given. Look, I get it. In our culture, when you re-gift Christmas presents, if you're busted in that moment, it's embarrassing. It's shameful, right? Like re-gifting gifts in our culture is kind of like frowned upon a little bit. I still do it. Don't tell my mom. Right? But, but we're called to re-gift God's gifts. Take the gifts God has given us and live generously giving to others. I've heard it said that work is the act of making yourself useful to others. It's not just for us. Work is relational, and that's powerful because it's a reminder that we aren't alone. We should pause and recognize that callings in Scripture, they're often not individual. Often they're communal, right? Bezalel's call is no different. And could it be that feeling called and feeling like we're walking in our calling is so elusive because we've often in our culture made it about me when in the Bible it's so often communal. You see, we're given this call, this job in Genesis, right, to tend the earth, take dominion over creation, and to be fruitful and multiply. But this doesn't just stop at procreation, but civilization. God didn't just want to create a species. He wanted these humans, these people he created, to go on and create society. He didn't just create a bunch of people in a bunch of cities to accomplish that. No, he left the work of building cities and culture and countries and civilizations to us. Now, have we ever done a perfect job? (laughs) No. Not even close. Right? We celebrate the U.S. We celebrate our freedom, right? We celebrate the freedom people have fought for, and yet we can recognize that we're not there yet, right? We are not a perfect nation. We're not a perfect culture, and really that's surprising when you look at the, the population of the United States and, and try to find the perfect people in it, there's zero, right? So it, it shouldn't be surprising that, that people with personal issues will build systems with systemic issues, And I think in this season, some of us have been wrestling with this idea. Can I still celebrate? Can I still have the same passion for and love something if I'm I'm realizing that it's got its flaws? To which I would say, welcome to the human experience, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. We celebrate all kinds of things, even with our flaws. Thank goodness Steph still loves me in spite of my flaws. But as I was studying this week, I thought of this passage in Jeremiah 29, where Israel was a broken and exiled people 
And not just a broken, but an evil nation of Babylon. And Jeremiah writes them in in chapter 29. And he says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says to all the captives he has exiled in Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the fruit they produce. Marry and have children. It's, It's, again, this command. Be fruitful and multiply even when you feel like you're in exile. Find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. There it is again. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Again, here's this picture of working. Again, working to, to, to create the culture God wants, even in exile. You know, of note, first we should notice we are exiles on earth, pilgrims, sojourners, right? We're not here for eternity. Our eternal citizenship, it's in heaven. We aren't called to put roots too deep in this world. And yet just because we look beyond this world for our ultimate hope, that doesn't mean we don't have a purpose in it. God calls us to work for the peace and prosperity of this nation we call home. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. You know, the theologian Matthew Henry once said of this passage that every passenger is concerned with the safety of the ship. Makes sense, right? So when people raise concerns about the ship, we don't say, well, if you don't like it, leave, right? Go, go get on a lifeboat and get out of here. No, if there's a concern, we listen. And so much of the concern and unrest we've seen in our nation of, of late is simply echoing the words of Martin Luther King Jr. We say to America to be true to what you said on paper. So we work for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness for all, right? We work for our nation's peace and prosperity and pray for its welfare. And you know why I have so much hope, even as troubling as as this season has been in our culture? Because we're in it. The church. Our culture is in this massive shift. Our country, it's, it's like it's shifting, and who better to have a hand in it than the body of Christ? And whether you realize it or not, you get your hand in shaping society every single week. Yeah, we we point to Jesus and the hope we have and the truth of the gospel always, but Monday through Friday, we shape and direct and grow society in small ways through our work. And maybe in all honesty, again, your workplace has you feeling derailed, right? You're nine to five. You're like, I I don't know. God will remind you like he did the Israelites of his sovereignty, right? That you can trust that God has you where you are. You aren't where you are by accident or mistake, whether it's geographically or your workplace. God wants to use you right where he has you. He's called you personally. That's that inward perspective, and he's called you to connect with others. That's that outward perspective. But there's a third perspective, quickly and briefly, that we had to examine, and it's quite simply work and Jesus. Because ultimately, everything in the Bible, all 3,200 plus characters in the Bible ultimately play the background. All of the Bible is either preparation for Jesus, presentation of Jesus, or participation in the mission of Jesus. That's the entire Bible. And again, the Bible itself begins with work, creation. And when you look at it theologically, physical creation was a temple. God came to rest in creation and dwell with man. But many of us know how that ends. Adam and Eve chose sin, fractured this order, fractured our relationship with God, and fractured our relationship with work. But you fast forward to Exodus. Again, Bezalel was at work, filled with the Spirit, making the tabernacle. This was to house the presence of God. 
you begin to understand why the Spirit would fill him to, to walk out this task. Because the tabernacle was a vessel for God to dwell among his people even after the fall when sin entered the creation. And it's a foreshadowing, right, of the more permanent temple that Solomon would build when they finally entered the promised land. But even that is simply a foreshadowing of Jesus, the new and perfect temple. Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels as the temple. One translation of John 1.14 reads, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus took on flesh, and when he became man, he was a craftsman. Jesus, right, the Nazarene blue-collar day worker. You know, our central Christian holidays, they, they often point to the cradle, they point to the cross, but we can't skip over the carpenter shop. Jesus spent more time in carpentry than he did vocational ministry. And the fact he spent so much time working with his hands affirms the dignity of our work, whatever shape it comes in. Then you look at Genesis, God is a gardener, he's a landscaper. <laughs> and this action in creation in the Hebrew, the word used for God's work is the same word you would use for taking out the trash or building a table or ordinary human work. Work isn't beneath God. He's already joined us in it. Jesus became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. See, the temple and tabernacle are no longer needed. God was here in the flesh. And we no longer work to build a tabernacle or a temple because Paul tells us, right? You read his epistles. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit no longer fills us to build a tabernacle. No, the, the Spirit fills us to be a tabernacle, a vessel through which people can encounter Jesus. And see, the tabernacle was distinct from the temple, again, because the tabernacle was mobile. They, put, they picked it up. They put it down. They, they were traveling. And if Jesus is truly in us, then we tabernacle Monday through Friday, wherever that sends us. So may we step in our Monday through Friday, nine to five, week to week grind. Again, whether it's at home or at an office with coworkers, and may we remember our identity in Christ, that we're filled with assurance, not working for approval. May we remember our call to re-gift our gifts for the peace and prosperity of others around us and our city and our nation. May we remember always that Jesus, just as he met us on earth and worked, he meets us in our work. But you know, I want to pivot tonight as we close with another act of remembering, which is communion. It's the first week of the month, so if, if you didn't grab one of these elements on the way in, feel free to grab one back there uh, where Vanessa is in the vestibule. Don't worry, you're not going to distract me. I have a four-year-old kid. It's not even going to bother me. I'm, used to, I'm unfazed. And if you're at home, you're online, you can run and grab it. But let's reflect. Let's remember, because again, Jesus was a carpenter. He worked with wood and nails. And we, again, we need this reminder that Jesus joins us in our work. But man, we should think, reflect that, again, Jesus worked with wood and nails. What kind of reminder was that for him as one day he would be nailed to a wood cross for all mankind? Did he think of that every time he drove a nail into a piece of wood? And I can't answer that. But I would encourage us, man, may we remember his sacrifice, his dying on a cross for us, his raising from the grave. That cross and grave, still empty. He's still risen. He's still on the throne. And he still did it for you. God is calling you. That's why we pause regularly to celebrate communion. Jesus told us to do just this so that we would remember. 
And we should also remember when Jesus stepped away from carpentry into ministry, it says that he called outcasts and quote unquote sinners, right? What culture would have called sinners to the table with him, to share meals, to have communion and relationship. I often wonder when he pulled up to those tables, would he be like, oh, look at that craftsmanship. Did he pull the dad move, put a coaster under one of the legs? He's like, oh, could have done a little better over here. But he invites us today in much the same way, to communion, to relationship. But before we step again to the communion elements and receive grace, we should remember that when, when Jesus came and they had an encounter with Jesus, the living God, Received salvation. They didn't leave that encounter outcasts and sinners. They left changed. Because Jesus didn't just come to indulge us. He came to transform us. That's why Paul said in, in, in the letter to the church in Corinth, when we come to the communion table, we should look at our hearts. See, where do I need transformation? Where do I need grace? Where do I need mercy? So I'd encourage us all as we take these elements tonight, man, reflect on your heart. Reflect on your need for Jesus, your need for grace. And if you're like, man, I need it for the hundred thousandth time, it never runs out, never runs dry. But I would also say as we go into communion, if you examine your heart tonight, you're like, man, I need prayer. And guess what? Fred's going to be right here. I'm going to be up here. We would love to pray for you tonight. But Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, he says, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And Paul continues. He says, in the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's drink the cup. Jesus, we thank you that you came and you tabernacled amongst us. As that glorious passage in Philippians 2 says, you didn't see equality with God as something to cling to, but you humbled yourself. You took on flesh. You became man. You were obedient unto the cross. All those days in the carpentry shop, working with wood and nails, possibly reflecting on that, that ultimate calling to hang on a cross and die for us. Jesus, I pray that we would never forget it. Not just for, for the episode and, and what happened, but for the grace that flows from it. The assurance we have. That, that, that you, as a, again, it says in Romans 5, 8, you did that for us while we were still sinners. And when we turn to you, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works of our hands, not by anything we could do. We can't boast, Lord God. I pray that we would be humbled, but we would walk in assurance. God, we wouldn't seek approval uh, from you or man, but we would rest in the assurance we have in your love that we are sons and we are daughters of our most high Father. We thank you that we can walk in covenant relationship with you, experiencing true freedom with you as our Lord, with you as our Savior, with your commands to guide us. Help us, as, as David says, I think it's in Psalm 119, I ran on the path of your commands. 
Help us to realize the freedom we have in you. We can run. We can run in it because your commands are the guardrails for our life as we pursue you, run after you, and run after your calling and purpose in our lives. God, help every one of us leave here tonight knowing that you've called us by name. You died for us individually. In Jesus' name, bless and keep us. Amen. Amen. So we are, if, if you could, we are going to exit here because we have to clean up for tomorrow morning's church service. And if you could, take those cups with you. just makes it easier for us. There's a trash can in the vestibule. So if you want to linger, you want to chat, absolutely do that in the parking lot. If you need prayer, absolutely. Fred and I would love to pray for you. Otherwise, we love you. We'll see you next week.